0: Lecture 11, Part 1 of The Endowments of Man by William Bernard Ullathorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lecture 11, The Fall of Man in Connection with the Fall of the Angels and the Redemption of Christ. Part 1 As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 if there be an absurd way of denying accepted truth it must be that of withholding the mind from the evidence yet this is the ordinary course followed by what are called free thinkers in religion like all the most evident things religion is her own witness and carries her own credentials proves how well she is fitted to the deepest requirements of human nature and explains that nature as nothing else can do but the free thinker first withdraws his mind and heart from religion and then undertakes to settle the cause of religion in her absence so far however is this mode of proceeding from simplifying the condition of human life Or from removing its perplexities, that it only augments them a thousandfold, whilst it leaves nothing whatever explained. For when a man rejects the revelation of God and refuses to believe his descent and inheritance from the fallen Adam, he finds nothing so hard to explain as the condition of humanity and his own position in this mysterious world the common refuge of theory-makers is to assume that man is descended from primitive ancestors that were rude brutal and but little removed from animal life and that he has developed with time into an intellectual and moral perfection as the result of progressive civilization but however plausible this theory may look to the mere rational man at first sight and when taken apart from the history of his race it will not bear a close inspection an effect cannot be greater than its cause the brutal man could not produce the intellectual and moral man from a mere change of external circumstances he must have within him the light of intellectual and moral principles If these principles and powers are not already within him, they must have been subsequently implanted by some great intellectual and moral cause, which would be equivalent to a new creation. The theory of human advancement from an inhuman condition is contradicted by the whole tradition of the human race which has brought everywhere the remembrance of a primeval state of innocence and happiness from which man has fallen and to this external tradition must be added the internal consciousness of man bearing witness to the historic fact and making him sensible to the very centre of his nature that he is not what he was created has undergone some sad and calamitous deterioration when faith therefore comes to teach us the history of our fall we at once find the solution of the riddle of human life and the manifest reply to many anxious questionings of the soul the proofs of the fall are everywhere to the mind that looks for them we see them in the condition of man and in the condition of the world we hear them in the voice of humanity in the testimonies of history and the revelations of god those however who measure the state and progress of man by inapplicable tests are sure to go wrong the true state of human progress is not to be found in accumulated property nor in the knowledge of sublunary things nor in social polish, but in the advancement of man towards his supreme good, towards which a simple and unpretentious mode of life, resting mainly on the providence of God, is the most favorable. The savage represents not the primitive life of man, but the corruption of that life, If on the other hand we examine the early civilizations as represented in the founding of cities, we find them taking their rise from the atrocious conquests of ambitious chiefs, who hunt their fellow-men, seize upon their possessions, and reduce them to a life of miserable slavery. Even the polished Greeks and imperial Romans base their civilization on no better foundation. Then the city itself and its founders become the object of men's worship in place of God. Every great and complicated civilization, when it is not strongly imbued and tempered with the principles of Christian faith, gives rise to a vast amount of mental and moral corruption and by the unequal distribution of the goods of this life occasions a mass of misery beyond the power of the state to remedy it is difficult therefore and even impossible to think that mere human civilization can be the chief cause of human perfection and happiness if we look to the dawn of history WE FIND A RACE OF MEN LEADING A SIMPLE PASTORAL LIFE IN THEIR FAMILIES, HAVING FEW MATERIAL WANTS, CONVERSING WITH GOD AND WORSHIPPING HIM IN SIMPLICITY OF HEART. THE SCOPE OF THEIR MIND IS TURNED MORE TO HEAVENLY THAN TO EARTHLY THINGS. THESE ARE THE DESCENDANTS OF SETH AND ENOS, AND THEY ARE CALLED THE SONS OF GOD. We see another race who build cities, of course, by the usual expedients of conquest and slavery. They forge metals into weapons of war, and invent musical instruments, probably for idolatrous worship as well as war. These are the descendants of Cain, and they are called the children of men. From this first civilization came the first great corruption of human life, but after the sons of god formed alliances with the daughters of men after the godly race had united with the ungodly race and shared in their corrupt civilization the whole human family corrupted its way and then came the deluge of water to sweep out the deluge of iniquity however great then may be the value of a true civilization and however it may be in the order of divine providence, it is undeniable that the world has seen a vast amount of false civilization, resulting in the most calamitous corruption of human nature. To measure the well-being of man by the standard of civilization, as it consists in crowded populations, in accumulation of wealth, in artificial modes and fashions of life, in the unceasing toil of the multitude in the ease and leisure of the few and in the ambition of all to rise above their neighbors in show and social status is to utterly mistake the nature of man and the elements that constitute his happiness it is not in the crowded ways of human life that a man strengthens feeds and elevates his mind and gives vigor and tone to his moral character but in the retirement of domestic life or in the retreats of solitude and he spoke wisely and well who said i never retire from among men without finding myself less a man the one question decisive of human happiness is whether a man most seeks god or himself For there is but one fundamental law of human progress and perfection and that is the progress of the man towards his supreme good and final end and to this principle all the cares and concerns of this life are subordinate from this principle it necessarily follows that a people who live by faith and make their religion the first object of their life will never exhibit to the eyes of worldly men as great an appearance of worldly prosperity as they who make this world their first object and god but a secondary consideration they have much less of this world's ambition they are not eager for display whether of their bodily or mental good they are not always on the stretch after this world's goods they make not their life an unbroken toil after money or distinction as if it were the one virtue of human nature they are more blessed nevertheless in the material goods that they know they have received from god because they have fewer wants and use their temporal goods with temperance and moderation and are free in giving for the love of god which is a great joy of life in the eye of wisdom the true test of social economy and the just standard of civilization do not consist in the amount of wealth and the spread of ideas possessed by society at large however distributed but in the way in which such circumstances affect the souls of men in their individual capacity as they are persons created for God, and not merely as they are members of a human commonwealth, where one contributes mind and the sense of superiority, and a hundred contribute unwearied toil and the sense of inferiority. To return from this digression, a great proof of the fall of man shines forth from the first dawn of history in the expectation entertained by man of a divine deliverer and in the vicarious sacrifices in which the belief and hope of that deliverer is expressed it is difficult to imagine how this mode of worshipping god could have arisen and spread through the world without an adequate cause it is impossible to suppose that this universal practice of propitiatory sacrifices spread everywhere with the human race from their earliest remembrances until they reached the sacrifice of redemption could have originated with mankind unless there had been an original commandment from god to which the sense of his fallen condition and of the want of a divine deliverance led man to correspond we find a line of prophetic men from the earliest period of human life who keep up the teaching of the one true god and of the promised deliverer until that line centers in a prophetic family and that family grows into a prophetic nation the history of that nation becomes famous in the world and its records are filled with the actions of god as the governor and guide of that people they are constantly suffering for their infidelity to the voice of god yet they record their own guiltiness and never cease from offering sacrifices in hope of their divine deliverer who shall free the whole world from evil The more they sin, the more they disobey, the more they reveal the weakness of human nature, the more loud and strenuous becomes the voice of their prophets, portraying the whole character of that divine deliverer, even to the minutest particulars, with all the harrowing circumstances of his sufferings and death the very prophets themselves are the vivid figures in their own persons of his life and sufferings and whilst this prophetic nation exhibits a light to the whole world which the world is slow to perceive even amid the grossest corruptions of paganism three fundamental truths however much abused are still discernible among the nations at large that man has fallen from a primitive state of happiness that the divinity is to be propitiated by vicarious sacrifices and that man is in want of a divine deliverer hence though they lost sight of the true god they still feigned to themselves some god or other born of a woman whom they invoked as the helper and deliverer of man and upon these three fundamental ideas which seemed to be inherent in man when purged of all their errors and superstitions christianity was grafted st paul appealed to what tertullian calls this natural christianity of the human soul when he preached the unknown god to the athenians there is nothing isolated in the universe between heaven and earth there is a perpetual correspondence all things that are like are drawn towards each other by the attraction of their likeness there are many relations established between the things above and the things beneath which are the most clearly seen by the purest minds the two great divisions of created intelligences notwithstanding the great difference of their constitution have many things in common they have one creator lord and father they have one and the same divine illuminator of their intelligence they have one and the same principle of their perfection in the grace of the holy spirit they have the likeness of god in common and the spiritual virtues in common and their chief interests in common the supreme good of angels and of men is one and the same and as they were created to meet in one common good and in one eternal society with god they have a mutual interest in each other and in proportion to their goodness are attracted towards each other as the first and brightest of intelligent creations the angels are called in the book of job the morning stars and the sons of god when the foundations of the earth were laid for the habitation of mankind we are divinely told that the morning stars sang together and the sons of god made a joyful melody to the angelic hosts the creation of man was a great and joyful event for it brought them brethren in a new sphere of intelligent life and opened to them a ministry of charity to those brethren in the day of their trial and a most honourable service for as st paul tells us they are all ministering spirits sent to minister to them who shall receive the inheritance of salvation this is ever the divine way that God should show his royal generosity and absence of all jealousy, by ennobling his creatures, in giving them high offices and ministries, so that those who are superior may enlighten, protect, and serve those of their brethren who are still inferior in place and weak in good. Having passed their own probation and reached their final good, They receive this additional honor happiness and likeness to god that they are made the ministers of god to men to be a charitable help to those who are striving to obtain their final end if we take the concordance in hand and turn to the word angel you will find that from the beginning to the end of the scriptures THE MINISTRY OF ANGELS TO MEN IS RECORDED IN MORE THAN 300 PLACES. IF YOU SCAN THE MYTHOLOGIES OF THE GENTILES WITH AN INTELLIGENT VIEW TO THEIR FIRST ORIGIN, IT IS DIFFICULT TO RESIST THE CONCLUSION THAT THEY ORIGINATED IN THE CORRUPTION OF THE EARLIER BELIEF IN THE MINISTRY OF ANGELS. THE VERY STRIFES BETWEEN THE INFERIOR GODS AND THE REVOLUTIONS IN THE HEAVENS which those mythologies celebrate, are but the clouded and perverted reminiscence of the conflict of the good and evil angels, and the fall of the latter from their principalities. God is not far from each one of us, nor the ministering angels who are with God. St. Paul therefore teaches the Hebrews, You are come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly jerusalem and to the company of many thousands of angels and to the church of the firstborn who are written in heaven and to god the judge of all and to the spirits of the just made perfect the angels were created in a place of probation to which the scriptures give the name of heaven although it was not the heaven of beatitude where they lived by faith and contemplation until having stood their trial they passed to the eternal vision of god pure spirits they received excelling gifts above their nature and by their fidelity they perfected their love the eternal word was their illuminator and therefore their mediator and the holy spirit was by his gifts of grace their sanctifier and their perfecter but like ourselves they were made from nothing and were consequently by nature weak and changeable their nature was weak though their gifts were strong let them once lose their humility and the more noble their gifts the greater the peril of their appropriating as their own what they have divinely received from god and so falling from god through the vice of pride and the descent from justice as it is the office of the higher intelligences among men to enlighten guide and influence those who are endowed with less intelligence so it is the office of the higher orders of angelic intelligences to illuminate the lower orders with their superior light and influence now lucifer was one of the noblest and most highly endowed among the angelic hosts who like some great heresiarch drew a third of the angels into his apostasy from god revolting in their pride as pure spirits from the divine author of their good acting from no corporal weakness and under no influence from an external temper these angels greatly sinned against so great a light and with so great a pride that their fall was irreparable there is no redemption for them and saint paul assures us that jesus nowhere takes hold of the angels but of the seed of abraham he taketh hold the great mystery of redemption from sin and of a new headship to the creation was preordained in favor of the human race and this most amazing of all mysteries was partly revealed to the angels during their probation as a test of their faith and humility and by their faith in this mystery or their revolt from its revelation the angels stood in the truth or fell but this requires a larger explanation how magnificent were the endowments of those angels before their fall and how terrible the pride through which they fell may be gathered from the prophet ezekiel where he describes the fall of their leader as a type of the fall of the king of tyre thou wast the seal of resemblance full of wisdom and perfect in beauty thou wast the pleasure of the paradise of god every precious stone was thy covering thou wast a cherub stretching out thy wings and covering and i set thee in the holy mountain of god thou hast walked in the midst of the stones of fire thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day of thy creation until iniquity was found in thee and i cast thee out from the mountain of god and destroyed thee o covering cherub out of the midst of the stones of fire and thy heart was lifted up in thy beauty and thou hast lost thy wisdom in thy beauty i have cast thee to the ground the height of ambition to which lucifer aspired in his pride is more fully described by the prophet Isaiah, where he puts forward as the type of the king of babylon how art thou fallen from heaven o lucifer who didst rise in the morning how art thou fallen to the earth that didst wound the nations and thou saidst in thy heart i will ascend into heaven i will exalt my throne above the stars of god i will sit in the mountain of the covenant in the sides of the north i will ascend above the heights of the clouds i will be like to the most high but yet thou shalt be brought down to hell into the depth of the pit this description points to an ambition on the part of lucifer to take the headship of creation and of the covenant in place of the son of god it is an intimation that the pride of the great cherub rose to its intolerable pitch of insolence through jealousy of the predestined incarnation of the son of god and through the defeat of an ambition to take the headship of the creation st paul is frequent in urging the truth that although the angels were appointed to minister to men in what concerns their salvation yet they are not the saviors of men to which he asks of the angels hath god said at any time Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And again when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God adore him. Here is a plain indication that when the incarnation was revealed to the angels, they were commanded to adore the Son of God in the form of man. Again the apostle asks, To which of the angels said he at any time, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thy enemies my footstool? And he shows that God would not subject the world to the angels, and so give them the headship, but that in Jesus Christ he lifted up man to a condition above the angels, through his death, putting all things under his feet, destroying the empire of death that is to say, the devil, for he nowhere layeth hold of the angels, but of the seed of Abraham he layeth hold. If we unite this doctrine of St. Paul with the description of the fall of Lucifer by Isaiah, the conclusion rises to the strongest probability that there was some mysterious ambition and jealousy among the proud angels respecting the Incarnation and some mysterious rejection of them in connection with that mystery this is fully brought out by saint john in the apocalypse where the vision depicts the fall of satan and his angels as the type of antichrist and his followers in that most wonderful book the incarnate word of god is the central figure he is the alpha and omega THE BEGINNING AND THE END OF ALL THINGS. WE ARE MADE TO SEE THE WHOLE COURSE OF THE ANGELIC HISTORY, AS WELL AS OF OUR HUMAN HISTORY, ENDING IN GOOD OR EVIL, ACCORDING AS ANGELS OR MEN CONDUCT THEMSELVES TOWARDS THE MYSTERY OF HUMAN REDEMPTION. THERE THE INFLUENCE OF ANGELS, BOTH GOOD AND EVIL, UPON THE DESTINIES OF MANKIND, ARE CLEARLY SHOWN there we behold that mystery of the divine incarnation as the beginning the middle and the end of all things there we see the great patience of god in the exercise of his providence ruling all things in view of the final exaltation of the just with his incarnate son and of the final overthrow of his adversaries with their chief instigator satan The apocalypse is the prophecy of prophecies unlocking the final sense of all preceding prophets and drawing from the conflict of the good and evil angels in heaven on account of the first revelation of the predestined incarnation the type of the conflict on earth between faith and infidelity between the church and the unbelieving world as they respect that mystery accomplished such is the character of all prophecy one person is put as the type of another one group of events becomes the type of another where the principle of the conflict continues the same in the apocalypse the mother of christ is put forth as the type of the church which is the mother of the faithful and as mary is the spouse of the holy ghost so the church is the spouse of christ and satan is put forth with profound significance as the type of antichrist the conflict of the good and evil angels resulting from the vision of the son of god as the son of the glorified woman is more than a type of the conflict between the societies of faith and infidelity on earth forasmuch as the good and evil angels are seen to take their sides and actually join in the conflict between good and evil even to the consummation of all things and the temple of god was seen in heaven writes st john and the ark of the testament was seen in the temple Christ is the testament, Mary is the ark of the testament. As St. John of Damascus says, she is the animated ark of the living God. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon beneath her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And being with child, she cried out travailing in birth, and was in pain to be delivered. And there was seen another sign in heaven, and behold a great dragon having seven heads and ten thorns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered, that when she should be delivered, he might devour her son, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her son was taken up to god and to his throne this great dragon is afterwards called that old serpent who is called the devil who seduceth the whole world the first of the two great signs in heaven is the glorified mother of god incarnate in our humanity for her son is taken up to god and to his throne and none but god can sit upon the throne of god but as a type of the church a part of this description refers to the sufferings through which the children of the church are brought to god the other sign the great dragon lying in wait to destroy the child after his birth is satan the type of antichrist as he is his instigator this type was first fulfilled in herod who sought the death of the child from whom he was saved by the flight of the woman through the desert into egypt both saint peter and saint paul speak of the divine incarnation as predestined before all ages and all creation saint paul applies to it the words of the psalm Sacrifice and oblation thou wouldst not, but thou hast fitted a body to me. Behold, I come, in the head of the book it is written of me, that I should do thy will, O God. St. Peter speaks of the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot, foreknown indeed before the constitution of the world, but manifested in the last times. St. Paul says again, we have redemption through his blood, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, whilst in the apocalypse Christ is called the beginning of the creation of God. End of lecture 11, part 1